Welcome to the Jeffers Notes with John Jeffers, only on Contra Radio Network. All stations, this is Crystal Palace. Stand by for a message from Brad Zapp. Hello, Intelligentsia. John Jeffers here. We're going to do an episode of the Jeffers Notes. As you can tell, I had my gum surgery Tuesday, and this popped up last night during the night. So, yeah, it was deep, and it's sore, like my teeth. But here I could uh, do up a quick episode of the Jeffers Notes here. And what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about this. You know, a Chinese, uh, no, 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 no. A Chinese migrant says TikTok, you know, the app that is not supposed to be on any federal uh, communication devices, you know, the one that Biden outlawed, I know he outlawed it, and now he's on TikTok. Well, TikTok helped her to know where to cross the U.S. southern border. I know, say it ain't so. Who would have guessed, right? This is from uh, the New York Post, which, by the way, is a conservative newspaper. So, as an influx, who else who did write this? Oh, Alba Fantauzi. As an influx of immigration from around the world continues to surge, many are now crossing the country through gaps in the border wall, and TikTok is reportedly helping them to do it, which, of course, you know, TikTok, TikTok, a translator speaking of a 37-year-old female Chinese migrant related to 60 Minutes after being asked about how they learned about the southern border gaps near California. Now, according to a segment on 60 Minutes, migrants have purportedly been using videos on the China-owned social media platform that provides step-by-step instructions for how to find gaps in the border wall and hire smugglers. A TikTok spokesperson told Fox News Digital, TikTok strictly prohibits human smuggling, which we remove from our platform and report to law enforcement when warranted. Gee. There's a denial if you ever heard one. So according to TikTok's website, the company provides a space for survivors of human exploitation to share their stories and for migrants and refugees to be able to document their journeys so we provide a space to do so. Isn't that special? The social media company also claimed that 93% of human trafficking content on the platform was removed proactively. We're not talking about human trafficking, you knuckleheads. See, when they're asked about something specific, they'll change the topic, the main idea. No, if we go from, you know, showing people how to get through the border, the gaps in the border, to human trafficking. One may have something to do with the other, but in this case does not. So nonsense, so nonsensical, can't stand it. 
For our friends in Canada, I just saw this. Uh, Newsweek put this out. And I'm Catherine, Catherine uh, Brodsky. I'm kind of surprised. But anyways, they put this out there. If you Canadians uh, are being Canadians without, get this, without life-threatening diseases are being encouraged to consider suicide. This, my friends, is a very slippery slope, in my opinion. Because where do you draw the line? What if it's the elderly? What if it's uh, a person who may have Down syndrome? I mean, where do we draw the line between life-threatening diseases and those without life-threatening diseases be encouraged to consider suicide? What kind of sick crap is this? I know, it's going to save money on our, our health system. Well, there you go. Therein is the problem with socialized medicine. So a person with Down syndrome who does not have a life-threatening disease, if they were in Canada, could be encouraged to consider suicide. Why? Who knows? I mean, at what point? Does the state decide what what would be a happy and productive life? Who are they to say? Well, the brass tech says they do because they're paying the bill. January 27, Dutch blogger Lauren Hove passed away through assisted suicide. After enduring years of chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as myalgic encephalitis, autism, ADHD, and anxiety, she, at the young age of 28, chose euthanasia to escape a life dominated by pain. Now remember, this is um, Catherine, Catherine Brodsky. You'll have to forgive my speech. I got stitches between the gums and cheeks here, so... The, the pronunciation doesn't always come out right. Bear with me. So as a Canadian, I'm familiar with the Medical Assistance in Dying, the MAID program, which has allowed eligible adults to request assisted death services since the federal legislation passed in June of 2016. As of this year, the MAID program was also set to allow those with mental illness to choose euthanasia. However. A recent development on February 1st proposed legislation to temporarily exclude individuals with a sole underlying medical condition of mental illness until 2027. This legislation is currently under review by Parliament. And unless it passes, the exclusion will be lifted on March 17th, 2024. So what it means is for you Canadians, this means individuals struggling solely with mental health issues, may become eligible for assisted death. A confession. Initially, I welcomed the idea of assisted dying, believing it could be a humane choice for those at the late stages of irreversible illnesses to make choices on their own behalf. However, my growing concern lies in the application of MAID by the Canadian government. 
You know, here in the United States, and I remember it was Trump's uh, first State of the Union address. I remember it. He wanted the Congress to pass the Right to Try Act. If you had late, you were um, irreversible illness, and there was an experimental medication or procedure, they wanted to give you the right to try it. The way I see it is the right to try is is good, and I'll tell you why. One, you've got if you're the person suffering for it and you choose that avenue, you've got nothing to lose at that point. You're going, you're on, you know, you're you're going to die from the disease anyways. What if you try this new procedure and medication and it works? And if it doesn't work, then at least they've got a human trial to look at. The developers, the pharmaceuticals, whatever, what have you. However, back to the article. Uh, she says, I, uh, Catherine says, I am now skeptical about the true autonomy of individuals opting for assisted deaths, especially in a country with socialized health care. Remember? the beginning i told you this is about money is it fine isn't it funny how it always comes down to money the risk of medical practitioners recommending made as a cost-cutting measure to alleviate strain on the healthcare system is unsettling as suggested by a 2020 analysis estimating potential annual savings to save 66 million dollars annually in healthcare costs so you have the Canadian government that has put a monetary value on a human life. And I didn't read this article before I started talking to you about it. So individuals considering MAID are already vulnerable due to physical and mental suffering, making them susceptible to external pressures. Now, reflecting on her own past struggles, she recognizes the unpredictability of emotions and circumstances. What seems unbearable one day may change with time and support, yet the choice to end life is a permanent one. That is true. Like many others, I've uh, lived with chronic pain for much of my life. I can recall many days where I've wondered what the point was of continuing to suffer, and then a miracle drug can come along. Will it continue to work indefinitely? I don't know, but for now, I feel like I have my life back. And here's the thing. There's an unpredictable nature to healthcare. What one experiences one day can change tomorrow. There are exceptions. Recall reading about Canadian journalist John Scully, an 82-year-old man dealing with severe depression, hospitalized many times, 19 treatments with electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy perhaps, and takes up to 30 pills a day to manage his chronic pain and health issue. Shouldn't he have a choice? And yet, I was struck by something in the statement put out by Lauren Ho's parents. Quote, millions of people are affected by EME-CFS with no established treatment pathways and no cure, they wrote on X on February 2nd. So why is their suffering acknowledged enough for euthanasia but not enough to fund clinical research. There you go. Why? Because it costs money. 
And herein lies the rub, my friends. Why is euthanasia offered as a viable solution to a potentially non-permanent problem when other options are possible? Mental health services in Canada and elsewhere are scarce. Psychologists are expensive and out of reach for many. Psychiatric services are free of charge, but the wait lists are even longer than those for psychologists, and few people can get access. The wait to get help is usually over a year. Family physicians just end up prescribing medications based on a checklist and see what sticks. Almost seems like our health care is even out of the dark ages, does it? So for those with chronic pain and disability, have been put at the front of the line for MAID, readily being presented with assisted dying services. Instead of treatments or alternatives, can create a sense of being undervalued or marginalized. It implies that end-of-life choices should be prioritized over efforts to provide care, support, or treatments that could improve one's quality of life or extend their lifespan. And moreover, individuals feeling like a burden on their families may be easily swayed. My friends, as you know, my mother is dealing with uh, RA. I mean, she's tried, she's been on the latest stuff out there. Doesn't help. And she has said many times that she feels like a burden to her family. That feeling is valid. That's the way they feel. That's the way they think. How would you think? What would you want to do? So Catherine has heard of at least one case where a woman decided to end her life because she couldn't get access to opioids for pain management. And while opioids are far from ideal, where it's a choice between life and death, perhaps her doctor should have considered giving her another chance at life. For me, the troubling part of all this is that instead of enhancing life-staining systems, whether for people with mental health concerns, chronic pain, or disabilities, the Canadian government is opting for permanent exit plans that alleviate strain on the health care system instead of improving it. People deserve to have choices. And the choice to end their life should only be considered once every other possible option has been exhausted. An estimated 836,000 to 2.5 million Americans and more than 580,000 Canadians suffer from myalgia. Their lives are inherently valuable. They are. Now, Catherine Brosky is a commentator and a writer who's contributed to publications such as Newsweek, Variety, Wired, The Washington Post, Guardian, Esquire, CNN, Vulture, Playboy, Independent, Mashable, and many others, covering a diverse range of topics ranging from culture to tech. So anyways, if they're doing that in Canada, who's to say they're not doing it here in the United States? Well, I'll tell you why they're not doing it in the United States. Because one, we don't have, well, we, we do have... We have socialized medicine, but it's not to the extent it is in Great Britain or Canada. On the other hand, we keep people alive because we can build Medicare, build the federal government, we can make money on them. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't think I am. 
Now, for the rest of you, something interesting. If you're living out in, uh, oh, uh, say, uh, Colorado, or the Colorado River out west, you need to know this, guys. This, this is not being reported, and I'm going to tell you about it. Uh, this is called The Cool Down by Mike Taylor. Came out a couple days ago. And he's reporting that the U.S. hydroelectricity reservoir is on the verge of reaching Deadpool levels. So what could that mean? What does that mean? It's a huge opportunity here to right some historic environmental wrongs is basically what we're talking about. Now, uh, it's been it's been nearly a year since Lake Powell reached dangerously low levels, and though the human-made reservoir has risen since, there's still much cause for alarm. So created in 1963, Lake Powell is a product of the Colorado River and the Glen Canyon Dam. It has been drying up since 2000 because of a mega drought in the southwest and unsustainable water usage. Newsweek reported last February Even above-average rainfall and snowpack may not help. Robin White wrote a uh, sentiment echoed by the Colorado Sun in August. So what's really happening? The main concern is that the lake, located in Utah, Arizona, will reach Deadpool of 3,370 feet. Newsweek also reported last year, which marks when the hydropower dam would be unable to function. All 10 of the lake's lowest recorded readings were made in March and April. On April 12th and 13th, this is last year, the water level dropped below 3,520 feet. It climbed to a peak of 3,584 feet July 8th, but has been dropping ever since. Thursday's reading was uh, 3,564 feet, and more than half of the boat launch ramps and other sites were inaccessible. Lake Powell is in the same boat as Lake Mead, a couple of hundred miles away in Nevada and Arizona. The United States' two largest reservoirs, and they rely on the Colorado River to provide water and electricity to millions of residents. Lake Powell supports 5.8 million households and businesses in Arizona, Colorado, Nebraska, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, and Wyoming. Lake Mead provides power to 1.3 million Americans in Arizona, California, and Nevada. That's per CNN. So you're asking, why is it concerning? All right. If Deadpool were reached, it would be a catastrophe. Newsweek reported last February, much of life in the southeast U.S. exists, as we know it, due to the Hoover Dam, and Deadpool would cause all of its operations to cease. Anthony Arrigo, who wrote a book about the dam, told the outlet, Without the dam system along the Colorado, it's not hyperbole to say that the Southwest would be virtually uninhabitable. The reason that the Southwest exists as we know it today is because of the dams. There is no other reason. Rigo and Robert Glennon, a water policy and law expert and emeritus professor at the University of Arizona, told Newsweek that tribes, farms, cities downstream would go kaput, naming Los Angeles and salad greens as victims, what can be done? In the short term, Colorado River users need to figure out how to use less water. The Audubon Colorado River 
Program Director Jennifer Pitt told Newsweek, there is a broad agreement that water uses need to be reduced by about 30%. That's almost a third. But that's not yet agreement about who should use less. Seven states in the U.S. and two in Mexico rely on water from the Colorado. In the longer term, as climate change continues to warm the region, the problem will get worse. So, reducing carbon emissions has to be a part of the solution as well. The Federal Bureau of Reclamation has proposed digging tunnels around the dam, restoring the river's flow, or lowering the power turbine turbines to ground level. The Denver's Nine News reported last year on the day of the historic low. Gary Walkner, he's a co-founder and executive director of the nonprofit Save the Colorado, told the television station the dam should be decommissioned. There's a huge opportunity here to right some historic environmental wrongs and perhaps, perhaps, make more logical sense about how we manage the entire river system, he said. Eric Balkin, executive director of the nonprofit Glen Canyon Institute, agreed. I think it would be foolish for us not to at least study the idea of fully phasing out that reservoir because it is becoming more and more likely that it's going to drop into a Deadpool scenario, Balkin told Newsweek. There you go. I'm telling you about it now. Some of you out in the Southwest and in the West have been talking about it. The rest of us don't hear that much about this kind of stuff going on because we we just don't, we don't, our electricity doesn't uh, flow from the Colorado. There's a lot that could and should be done, I believe, but what do I know? All right, my friends. This is going to be it for this episode of the Jeffers Notes. Glad you tuned in. Thanks for listening. And with that said, I will uh, we'll be doing uh, an episode of the Jeffers Brief. Hopefully, the next couple of days, and this will probably swelling will go down. Right now, I'm swelling something for you. I feel like you know. What I feel like it's funny. I feel like I've been in uh, a fist fight. It's like, man, you feel a little sore, you're bruised, you're going, what the hell? That's what I feel like now. It's nothing that some Tylenol 3 and some ibuprofen can't handle. So with that said, thanks for listening.